0: in the all-new hyundai santa fe visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details hyundai there's joy in every journey it, shoot that, shoot that. We in
1: the welcome to city game your brooklyn nets podcast on wfan and radio.com here's your host Steve Lichtenstein. And hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the City Game Podcast, the show for Brooklyn Nets fans. I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFN.com, and folks, can't win them all. Nets' eight game winning streak went down the tubes with a 115 98 blowout by Dallas on primetime Saturday night at Barclays Center. But, you know, what can you do? No Kevin Durant, no Kyrie Irving, no Tyler Johnson even. Not with a migraine, according to the Nets. Supposedly uh, could be back on Monday night. So, you know, just flush it. The one-sidedness of the loss takes nothing away from all the Nets accomplished to get within a half game of Philadelphia, first place in the Eastern Conference. And in this episode, we'll take a look at how they got here. There's two games remaining in Texas before the All-Star break. And to help me with that, I got a new special guest to the podcast. And he's another talented young writer developed on the NetsDaily.com farm. Matt Brooks will be joining me in a few minutes. Also got a couple of questions on Twitter that I'll answer later in the show in the Lister mailbag segment. So chill out until then. And afterward, I ask that you please subscribe to the City Game Podcast when you can on Radio.com. Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or whatever platform you're using right now. And please, feel free to let me know what you think in the Apple Podcast review section. So here's where I'm going to go a bit off-brand again. You know, I gotta give some praise to the Nets coach. I know, Steve Dash is not perfect. We all wondered what the hell he was doing with that small lineup versus the Mavericks on Saturday night. But, you know, we're really just nitpicking here. I mean, you can't deny that the defense has been playing with more energy, more connectivity, as he likes to call it, you know, ever since that horrific loss in Detroit last month. I know everyone likes to blame the coach for everything. Heck, I, I know Nick fans who are questioning Tom Thibodeau, even though he's got a team with, like, no three point shooting at 500. So let's just start with the effort issue, because I was kind of harsh a few weeks back when I ranted about how, you know, and that's brought this guy in because of his so-called communication skills. That his resume as a former MVP and Hall of Famer gave him instant gravitas. And then they roll over in the games. But you know, someone pulled a switch. And you know, we'll have to wait until the book is written to find out whether this was player-driven and you know, with guys like Jeff Green taking charge of the locker room, or whether Nash laid down a law and promised at least some accountability. All I know is that we've seen a different DeAndre Jordan these last few weeks, more engaged defensively with less loafing on the court. And even Irving has been sneaky good on defense too, which makes me think of something Mike Shashevsky once said about him, You know that those times where Irving shows you he can play defense makes you wonder why he isn't doing it all the time. So it's been nice to see more effort there from him as well. And again, the locker room has been closed all season. So there's been less reporting, meaning I'm just guessing here what went down. So I asked Netswing Joe Harris about Nash's demeanor when things were looking dicey back then. And here's his response. Hey, good morning, Joe. Uh, A lot of people look at Steve on the sideline and he projects the quintessential Canadian calm. But I just want to know, were there times, especially when things weren't going as well as they are now? He showed you guys a, a fiery side, really really getting after you guys?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, Steve is obviously extremely competitive, but I think he just, um, you know, he's one of these guys where he really has his emotions in check. He's not ever too high or too low. It's very even keel most of the time, even when stuff is difficult. But, you know, I think, uh, you know, for us, it's sort of nice just to know that that's like the constant, you know, there's, it doesn't waver a ton regardless of what what's going on. He's always optimistic and positive, and uh, yeah, I think, you know, in terms of showing the fiery side, you know, there are there are definitely maybe moments here and there, um, whether it's halftime, after a game, whatever it is, um, but a majority of the time, you know, it's just sort of the consistency that he's shown from the beginning of the season to now.
1: That was the sweet shooting Joe Harris, the NBA leader in three-point field goal percentage at... 50.4 percent you know thinking back to Saturday I kind of thought Joe had like a rough game then I looked at the box score and he went three for eight from three now it's below his normal rate but it's still pretty darn good you know meanwhile Timothy Luau Cabarro hits a three and that's Twitter goes wild never mind that he ends up killing the team with two for 12 outing overall but I digress so, let's get back to my favorite development of the streak, and that was the unlocking of Bruce Brown on offense. And you know, we all know about his struggles from behind the three-point arc, 6'28 for this season, ghastly 21.4%. Somehow, though, this six-foot-three guard has been absolute dynamite in the paint. He's been averaging over 11 points per game in the last nine games, and on the season... Shooting ridiculous 73% inside 5 feet, according to NBA.com. That's 10th in the league among players with at least 100 such attempts. And of the 9 other guys, only Kawhi, Leonard, and Giannis Antetokounmpo aren't centers. Pretty good company, I'd say. Anyway, a lot has been written and discussed about this, so I won't belabor it much more. Except for trying to figure out if this is just a Brown thing or something that's like translatable. I mean, the Nets brought back Andre Robertson after cutting him with a 10-day contract. And he's a guy who can really help them. Unique defender, smart, has the size to guard up. But man, this guy can't shoot. And you know, the Nets play games that matter against good teams. No one is going to be guarding him if he continues to stand in the corner. It's a waste of space. So, given all the success that Brown has had in what ESPN Zach Lowe has called... A rover position, new position. I thought I'd ask Nash the obvious follow-up, and here's the clip. Hi, Steve. Uh, the way that Bruce uh, is able to find seams in another the paint, is that translatable for a guy, let's say, like Andre, who you got one of your first looks at tonight? So what did you think of him, and can he be used in that way as well? A little bit. I mean, I, this
3: like Bruce makes it look easy. It's not easy be a six, three guard and be picking, rolling, catching the ball, finishing. Um, you know, Andre's a very intelligent player as well. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't want to put that on him. You know, he can do some picking and rolling for sure. And he can definitely guard some bigger players, but uh, Bruce is special in that. He can do that. That's you know, it's not a normal thing to ask, uh, you know, a six, three guard to kind of be the roller. And uh, so his ability to do that and to finish and to have the timing and, um and willingness frankly you know I, I know a lot of a lot of guards would laugh you out of the gym if you you ask them to, to pick and roll so um you know it's he's a winner and he plays hard and i think that skill is is uncanny so um you know i don't want to put that on, on andre or anyone else but uh you know if they can do some of the things that he can do and to, to gain minutes for their defensive abilities you know that that would be a bonus
1: interesting answer there from steve nash I mean, I'm not quite sure how Robertson fits in some of these lineups because it's like impossible to play him with another non-shooter. Like when Nash paired him with Jordan on Saturday night with disastrous effects. 6 minutes on the court together, Nets were outscored 19 to 4 according to nba.com. I mean, you could argue that was the ball game right there. But overall, you know, I got to give Nash and his staff some props here team is playing the right way winning a lot of games you definitely can argue that having as many as three all-stars at his disposal has a lot more to do with that but at the same time Nash has gotten better with understanding how to manage games both can be true so now let's hear what my special guest thinks and you know I was very grateful to be able to connect with Matt Brooks of netsdaily.com for the first time and here's the interview so, folks, just like the team they cover, NetsDaily.com is a development farm, providing a forum for so many talented young writers. I always say if there's news anywhere in the world that relates to the Nets and like a Kevin Bacon degrees of separation, NetsDaily.com has a writer on it somewhere. And you've heard several of them on this show. Today I got another one. Guy I'll go out on a limb and call the most thorough Of anyone out there and on the web who's breaking down Nets game film, it's Matt Brooks on my Zoom with me now. Matt, thank you so much for giving me some time to talk today about Nets basketball.
2: Thank you. That's too kind. Uh, I'm sure there's somebody out there doing it more thoroughly. (laughs) The internet's a big place, but uh, that's super kind of you to say, and it's uh, it's an honor to be here.
1: So, you know, Matt, I've spent the opening few minutes before you got on talking about Steve Nash, and, Mm. you know, I do... I really do believe your specialty is dissecting the intricacies of what the Nets are doing on both ends of the floor. So just give the listeners a couple of your favorite wrinkles. The coaching staff has put in during the winning streak, you know, more detailed than just unleashing Bruce Brown in the paint or sure. scram switching on defense. What are some of the things that you've liked the most?
2: Um, I like what they're doing with Deandre uh, weirdly enough. I, I, I think that, and it's not even just a DeAndre thing. It's, I feel like the core guys, they're having a little bit of a clear understanding of how they should be using them. So you'll see Kyrie Irving be used a little bit. They did this against the Clippers a couple of times in a what's known as a hedge and recover scheme, where he comes up, uh, does what's known as a show, where he kind of swipes at the ball. And he does this because uh, the other defender, in, and this is usually in pick and rolls, um, is usually behind the play. So it's a way of like, you know, saving the Nets time and and buying time for each other's teammates. They're doing a lot of little things like this with regard to DeAndre Jordan. They're playing him a little bit higher in terms of like, he's not just sitting in the paint and that drop coverage that we've, you know, I we've been talking about for the last two years. Yeah,
1: that we both dreaded.
2: <laughs> and I, you know, what I like, it's not just that they're, you know, making him, go defend right at the ball and, and, you know, contest out to three point shooters. They're kind of mixing it in. I do think there's a place in the NBA for drop coverage, but the key and, and, you know, coaches will say this is there needs to be a little bit of everything. There needs to be a little bit of drop coverage, a little bit of, you know, Deandre Jordan showing at ball screens. And I think that that's what this coaching staff is settling into just as a more macro perspective, um, they're getting so much better at just mixing things in to keep the opposition on its toes. So that's that's the big overarching thing that I'm seeing lately.
1: Well, you mentioned with the your your point with the drop coverage. It, it kind of depends on who the ball handler is, what kind of sure. mid range shooter they are. The old Kenny Atkinson uh, mindset of allowing any shooter, where you know a guy like Jeremy Lamb used to go off for you know like five you know foul line jump shots in a quarter because the nets would play the same drop coverage and give away uncontested shots because it was a mid-range two you know an easy mid-range two you know is is worse for a defense than a contested three
2: right yeah i mean it's yeah it's just and you even see it on offense too like they're doing little things. I mean, they've been kind of having different guys screen for each other, and they've been doing that all throughout the year. But they're mixing in some sets. Like, it's it's gone okay, but, um, you know, they're doing little things that they hadn't done at the beginning of the year. So, so I
1: think – Describe what they're doing with Joe Harris to freed him up a little bit.
2: Um, yeah. I mean, the big thing is – I mean, they, and they were running it early in the year, and I, it's the one I've been seeing the most is just having him screen and pick and pop where he sets a screen for Harden, and then he goes out to open space – and because Harden is such a devastating um ball handler, you as a defense, you almost like when you have a screen come, you know, Harden's way, as a defense by nature, you kind of want to have two on the ball for just a brief second because you know you're worried if a guy sits a screen, he's just gonna get by to the rim and draw free throws. Problem is Joe Harris is so good. The second he sees that a defense is leaning one way, he can kind of streak out into that open space. And that's when you get those pick and pop threes. So on what,
1: on the offensive side of the ball, it there's so many people who just look at the talent of the three stars and say all Steve Nash has to do is roll out the basketball and they'll figure it out. Yep. What are some of the things on that end that you you know not just the the pure you know the all three are great isolation scores. They I don't know they may still be one two and three in the NBA.com rankings, but yep. Uh, what are they doing otherwise? before, you know, they get in, before they're, they're forced into ISO ball.
2: Um, The three stars are obviously amazing. And that's a luxury that, you know, no one else can say right now. I think the thing that stands out to me, it's really two things. And it's not anything that's generally complicated because when you have this much talent, you don't need to overcomplicate things. You don't need to, you know, set extra screens, set back screens. Like you can keep it really simple because these guys are so good. So the two things are spacing there's always, always some, it's always one of Joe Harris, Kevin Durant, uh, Kyrie Irving in those corners. And that just makes it impossible with the way defenses in the NBA, you, you know, it's, it's impossible. I mean, I, I I know, I think DeAndre said this two days ago, it's very hard to guard guys one-on-one now. So you're going to need that, that help defender to come over and protect the basket. Well, if you have one of Kyrie Irving or Joe Harris in the corner, that makes it incredibly, incredibly hard to help you know, from the weak side of the floor. Um, and and that either leads to layups or threes if that defender does help over. So spacing is a big thing. The other thing, and I was talking to Steve Jones uh, Jr. about this, who's on Twitter, a film, a former film scout, uh, assistant coach of the Nets a while ago. Um, we were talking just kind of about how the Nets have, you know, kind of really, when they're running that uh, Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Joe Harris, uh, Jeff Green lineup. It's all guys that can not only, you know, shoot the three ball, but put the ball on the floor. So if they get run off the line, they don't need to sit there and wait for a dribble handoff or wait for, you know, somebody else to bail them out. They can put the ball on the floor and keep the chain moving in a lot of ways. And I think that that for the Nets is such a huge advantage. The offense doesn't get stagnant because there there's a guy that can always, always score at, from at least two levels.
1: Yeah, I it, it's it's almost historic the way their offense is running, but yep. so The defense though is where they're going to make their mark. So I got to ask you: the automatic switching on defense too much? I mean, you know, sometimes opponents aren't even setting real screens. You know, they're they move they move their bodies slightly in the way on the weak yep. side. All of a sudden, Kyrie Irving's on like a Serge Ibaka. You know, what do you
2: think? Yeah, I think it's a problem. This like the, with the entire league this year, really. Um, it just I, there's so many teams that are switching this year. It's either switching or zone, um, which both have been kind of to mixed results. But the switching has been better. I think that's where Harden comes in. Like they're they're just figuring out, or or DeAndre really. Like if if they do switch themselves into a bad mismatch, Harden and and DeAndre have just been so attentive of like, oh man, we have you know Serge Ibaka down low with Kyrie Irving. I'm going to go over there and try to switch him out. And Kyrie Irving, especially, is so quick. He can kind of, you know, skate back over to the matchup that one of James Harden or DeAndre Jordan's on. But I think it's a problem. I haven't seen it as much. Um, Their big problem is when they get those matchups, it's what happens after that. You know, they get into scramble mode, and then there's guys, you know, trying to recover out to shooters. And I don't think the Nets are all the way there, In that sense of their defense, that's kind of like the advanced late clock type of stuff that I think is going to take a little bit longer. But in terms of like the initial defensive sets where it's like you get those bad mismatches, I actually think they've been a little better at that lately.
1: Yeah. So like I said, I've been talking about Nash uh, and how he's evolving. You know, I don't know if you know, but I was very, very concerned when the Nets decided to trust their win now team with a guy
2: Oh, me too. i <laughs> never
1: really coached any level before. And, you know, in the early going, didn't exactly alleviate those concerns, you know, not calling timeouts and the end game management. Where is there ever a point where you thought, oh boy, this might not work?
2: Oh yeah. First month. And it, there's been a lot of like revisionist history now on Twitter of being like, well, it's never that bad. And it's like, well, you know, like he didn't know the, the timeouts, like he just wouldn't call them. Um I I thought some of the rotations are pretty weird early on and it was just, they just kind of looked disjointed and it it wasn't, they just sort of looked like they were playing rudderless at certain points. And now I I do feel like he's got his footing under him and maybe that's just the team itself. But I, yeah, I I think there were points in the beginning where you could definitely be concerned about what was going on. Um, And there were a lot of points, you know, a lot of signs pointing to that. Um, The timeouts thing is like really indicative of like where you are as a coach.
1: Yeah, I think though, one of the things that changed uh, was getting James Harden, and man, you know, to me, he's been the MVP since he's come to town. Agreed. Shooting, passing, manipulating defenses with his handle. Yeah, you know, and we talked about his post defense. You know, he's been absolutely brilliant. Now, I I don't know if you watched the ABC broadcast, and I thought I heard something that sounded insane to me. I think it was Jeff Van Gundy who said he was talking to Sean Marks. Try to compare Harden to Manu Ginobili. Manu Ginobili. I once wrote that Harden's game was like a two version of Larry <laughs> Bird, you know, with better ball handling. You know, your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I don't know. I he's he's the closest thing we have to LeBron in this league right now, in the sense that he has a way of just boosting. Yeah, but, Your chances. but
1: LeBron can do it just with his
2: physicality. The guy so, is, can, so can Harden though. Yeah. Harden but, can do it in a different way with the physicality. Yeah.
1: Yes, but he I think Harden uses his, you know, his his basketball instinct more sure. than LeBron does. LeBron could just pull you into into the post. Harden sure. has to dribble between his legs six times, and then he sees that you're finally not ready for him, and then he can do it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the big thing that that I, I see for the both of them is that they just have such a knowledge of you know we talked a little bit early on in this in this show about defensive rotations they know when those rotations are going to happen before the def, you know the defense itself even knows they're going to happen and I see that as a similarity for the both of them. Um, Harden is a little more finesse, obviously, and I think there's a lot of that 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 makes him great, but I think for the Nets, like it's so funny. It's exactly what they needed, and he's just been a connecting piece. I don't think it's a coincidence that all of Landry, Shamit, and and you know DeAndre Jordan have been playing better since Harden showed up. I, it just doesn't it doesn't seem like a coincidence to me.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, moving on, you know, I don't know that the Nets have ever had a full complement of players this season, or if they ever will. Frankly, you know, if they did though. What's your ideal rotation? And here's a hint. Any variation that has TLC in it is wrong.
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I like TLC funny because it's like there's an outline of a good player, but I just I don't know. It's the decision making. Like you just you can't you don't know what you're getting night to night. And if you're trying to put together a playoff rotation, that needs to be kind of, you know, really just X'd out immediately. You need guys that you know what you can get. So I think we know the first six, maybe even the first seven. So it's going to be some iteration of the the big three, Joe Harris. I would start DeAndre Jordan. I'm I'm fine with going traditional center um, in a playoff series. I guess you can switch that up. Uh, and then Jeff Green, Bruce Brown. And this is kind of where it gets fun. I like Tyler Johnson. I don't know if he's the eighth man. You'd probably put Landry Shamit there. But I think Tyler Johnson is somebody I have a little bit of faith in. Uh, and then Claxton as well like it's these back end guys I like the looks I, I think Shaman is firmly like a rotational piece uh, but Tyler Johnson Claxton those guys I think could maybe fill out the end of that rotation I'm not sure about you
1: well i I personally have a have a theory that uh, brown and green could play a lot together I don't like Brown and Jordan so much I have to go back and look at the two-man numbers. Yep. But uh, it just seems to me uh, that Brown being that little floater guy in the middle of the paint, you know, in a smaller lineup, when you when you have Green and Kevin Durant together, that alleviates some of the rebounding concerns and rim protection. But uh, if you have Jordan, yeah, play Harris. If you have Green, play Brown. That's that's kind of where I am. As for the bench, I, I don't see how Johnson and Chalmett can – both get minutes, especially when mm. you have Irving and Harden each getting, you know, 38 to 40. Uh, I don't, I don't see where one of them is going to have to go. And right now I think Tyler Johnson is going to be the odd man out. Mm. Uh, if Shamit ever goes through his little confidence issue again, you know, then we have to look at things differently, but uh, I'm glad that you don't have TLC in it. Uh, <laughs> I, I said this before. You know, I thought Joe Harris had a, had a rough game, and then I looked. He was three for eight. And TLC, he made like an early three, and he ended up two for 12, two for nine from deep, and, and everyone still believes in this guy. I mean, he can. He's, he's the most streaky shooter I've ever seen, and he's also has one of the lowest basketball IQs I've ever seen. So I don't know how he could play on a team that has championship
2: aspirations. His, it's not even the shooting that's streaky. It's like his defense too. Like it's it, everything about his game kind of, there's just a, a lot of variance in his game. It's a very odd thing. Um, you know, you always kind of with role players, you always sort of feel like, well, at least he has this one thing that he can rely on consistently. And TLC is just, you don't really know what you're going to get. Even the defense, it's like some games he's playing up top and being a really good point of attack defender let lets
1: people shoot over him. If they, it's if weird. that's all it is. That's his best aspect. Is it's weird. Um, he doesn't get beat off the dribble much, but you know he'll he'll get backed in and he'll let people shoot over him. And when they make it, if they don't make it, he looks good.
2: Yeah, I agree. Um. So uh, yeah, I, I and I think it's just right now. Like you know we're we're talking about the trade deadline and buyout market. I I see the center thing. I also think there's a world where you should maybe look at getting that sort of longer wing just to replace the TLC spot. Cause that kind of feels like why he's getting minutes, right? It's just the position and not even the position, but just the need that he fills.
1: Yeah. Well, that's my final question to you, Matt Brooks and that's daily.com. It's probably the one that I get asked most frequently in, in all these <laughs> on Twitter, you know, who should the nets get in the trade or buyout market? You know, someone that'll have an impact this season. Uh Personally, I'm skeptical about this because, you know, the buy, uh, you know, the extra play in spots and the tightness in the East standings. Maybe the buyout market won't be as flush as in recent seasons, fewer tankers. So, what do you foresee? And do you have any specific players that you think, wow, this guy could be a buyout candidate
2: and really, and would really help this team? Yeah, I think you nailed it on the head with this, just the way this season has been. all it's, it, just there's very few teams that I think can firmly say, Well, I guess we're out of the playoffs right now. Um, and honestly, like it, the name's been floated forever, but Trevor Ariza, I, I don't know. I know he's got things going on, um, outside of basketball. So I don't even know what he's looking at right now, but um, he's a guy that makes sense, right? Isn't that kind of what you hope Timothy Luau Cabarro can be? Is a, a Trevor Ariza type guy just plays, you know, does his job defensively spaces the floor a little bit. Um, and then it comes without all of the you know, <laughs> TLC transition plays. I think that's probably a position that you're looking at. And that's a guy that makes a lot of sense for them, especially with kind of the general, I guess, age of this team and experience. It's it's just a group that they like guys that are going to come in, that they know what they're going to get. Um, and it just seems like that sense of maturity on this team is sort of found top to bottom. So I think he fits in pretty nicely in that way.
1: Yeah, I can add to his uh, collection of team paraphernalia that he already owns. What does he have, like <laughs> 20 of them?
2: Uh, yeah, he's got a nice collection going. <laughs> uh, Matt
1: Brooks, I, I knew I could count on you to give the listeners a uh, top-notch analysis. Certainly delivered for me. Thank you so much. Folks, you want to hear more from Matt, just jump on netsdaily.com and find his archive columns. Give him a follow on Twitter, at Matt NBA. Matt? Thank you so much for jumping on the show. Hope one day to be able to connect with you live in person at a Nets game at Barclays Center. Soon enough. twenty twenty-four. Again, that was Matt Brooks of NetsDaily.com. I'm telling you, this guy puts out more analysis of Nets game video than anyone, and I just happen to agree with a lot of his takes. What can I say? One thing, though, that I should correct since I went back and checked NBA.com, for some reason the Brown and Jordan combination has fared much, much better than Brown-Green. Playing the equivalent of 3-on-5 offense, the Nets are plus 37 in 117 minutes, whereas having Green space the floor has seen the Nets get crushed by 40 points in 87 minutes. In terms of per 100 possessions, Brown's net rating goes from plus 8.6 with Jordan to minus 0.9 with Green. And most of that is attributable to offensive efficiency, not what you'd call intuitive. So let's bring on your questions now in a new listener mailbag segment. Thank you to all of you who sent them to me on my Twitter feed. The first is from @forevershook, who asked who I would target in a Spencer Dinwiddie deal. Well, forever Shook, That's a tough one because of Dinwiddie's injury status. I don't know if you heard a previous episode where I asked Nash about Spencer's rehab updates on social media, but he basically threw water on the notion of him coming back this season. Not that it can happen, but you have to believe that any team looking to trade for Dinwiddie knows that there's a pretty good chance he'll never ever play for them. You know, because of his contract option after the season. And with the Nets over the cap... I believe the most they could take in would be 125 percent of Dinwiddie's 11.454 million dollar salary, which is around 14.3 million. Now, who's out there? I guess you'd have to think that at some point, Houston will set PJ Tucker free, given where they are in the standings and Tucker's pending free agent status, and you know how generally awful he's performed this season. You know he'll fit in with what Brooklyn wants to do. But is that enough of a return for Dinwiddie? Uh, I'm not sure either side would agree to such a one-for-one deal. Unfortunately, you know, there aren't a heck of a lot of good options. I'm glad I'm not showing marks right now with that. So thank you for your question, Mr. Forever Shook. Moving on to At Rich Like Hell. He wants me to reiterate what I just told Matt Brooks. That TLC can't be in the rotation come playoff time saying, you know, he brings nothing to the table. So, at Rich Like Hell, you won't get a devil's advocate response from me, which I think you already knew. Look, you know, TLC can be a 13th guy on a championship team, and when you're missing KD, Kyrie, and a couple other guys, you have no choice but to give him minutes. But to start him like Nash did against Dallas? Honestly, I don't know what these coaches are seeing. I mean... Maybe they're thinking they can catch lightning in a bottle, that yep, this will be the day where he goes like 5 for 7 for 3. Yeah, he's had some of those, and they've lifted his overall three-point rate to respectability, but he's also delivered plenty of duds, and you just can't have that kind of inconsistency when you're trying to win a playoff series. Furthermore, and you know, I was trying to get into this with Matt Brooks before, he's way overrated on defense. Effort-wise, kudos to him. Knowing what he's doing out there, not so much. And I don't know how accurate NBA.com is in the section where they compute closest defender matchups, but here's what they have. When TLC is the closest defender, opponents are shooting 53% from the floor and 39% from three. He's also committed 38 shooting fouls in 34 games, and God knows how many of them were three-pointers. So let's not all of a sudden talk about him like he's some kind of defensive stopper. Again, you, you knew he was going to play quite a bit against Dallas. I just wished it wasn't as a starter. So thank you to At Rich Like Hell and all you listeners out there. And that'll wrap up this episode of the City Game Podcast. Again, thank you very much to Matt Brooks of NetsDaily.com for dissecting Nets game video and explaining it on this show. I'll be back sometime after the All-Star break to get into more detail on the upcoming trade deadline and then the next stretch run. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you're downloading these episodes. Please feel free to also post some nice comments on Apple Podcasts if you get a chance. So until next time, I'm Steve Lichtenstein of WFAN.com saying thank you for listening to the City Game Podcast.